0: it works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block. Release
2: with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time
1: at canva.com. Designed for work.
3: Hi everyone, you're listening to HBS After Hours. I'm Young Me, and tonight I'm here with Felix and Mihir. Hi guys.
1: Hey, hey, Young you me. me.
3: It feels good to be back, the three of us. Yeah, wonderful. I know. <laughs> I'm here. I, haven't seen I know. I was, <laughs> I I you. Traveling man. I know. Where did you go?
1: I was, um, I was in New Zealand, and I had never been. Went, took the family, and it was spectacular. Hardcore two weeks. Haven't done that in God knows how long. It's a very special place. It's all about nature and a little bit about you know adventure sports and tourism you uh, took
3: all you took the girls
1: oh yeah paragliding with the girls Ooh, and uh, zip okay. lining. so that was we did yeah. not do the bungee no yeah. bungee here i guess the, the neat thing about the place is it feels not just physically so far away but it's just a different world so as one example the domestic flight we took did not have security
3: you just okay. got on a plane like a bus and
1: you forgot like i've forgotten what it feels like to be in a place like that yeah. and it's like fantastic they have also made things everything easy So renting cars, they've perfected the one-way drop-off. You can do the one-way drop-off and then go to the next airport that you're flying to and pick up a car from that same agency without doing paperwork again. It's like they are built for speed and they're built for tourism. Wow. Um, And I think the only disappointment was You know, I feel like when I travel, I want to be challenged. I like want to have a hard time navigating the place. (laughs) And this place is way easier to navigate than the U.S. I mean, it's like so easy to do everything. So that was like you want it
3: to be difficult.
1: It's part of the challenge, right? It's part of what a vacation. I used to be like that thirty-five years ago. I have not grown up. I have not grown up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so highly, highly recommended.
3: Well, it's good to have you back.
1: It's great to be back.
3: So you guys both brought topics for us to talk about tonight.
1: I think we did. Uh, I would like to talk about the trade war. Okay. What about you, Megan? And we're going to do something straight out of the headlines as well, which is Tesla.
3: Oh, we're going to talk about Tesla. Which
1: I only found out recently you are a customer of. So we'll probe (laughs) you on that.
0: Okay.
3: (laughs) All right. Great.
2: I think the looming trade war to me is like the biggest story, the biggest story this week. So obviously, as you know, there was a first round. The U.S. imposed tariffs on on aluminum and steel, with lots of exceptions. Now, it, it's mostly going to hit. It's mostly going to hit China, and then uh, much more dramatic. There's a new round that's just announced by the United States, and then a, a counter a counter threat by China, uh, roughly $50 billion worth of trade. Much of it motivated, I think, from a sense that the United States is losing the trade war. You turn on the television, you read Twitter, we're losing the trade war. And the and the statistic that supports this notion that we're losing, I don't even really know what that means, losing a trade war. <laughs> exactly. but But, but the, the statistic that supports that is – trade deficits. So uh, the United States have, has a $500 billion trade deficit with China. And, and that is supposed to say something about the competitive position of the US in, in, the, in the world. Yeah. So here, you're the finance person at the table. Uh, trade deficits. Tell yeah. me.
1: Yeah, so ha- this uh, this brings me back to my first time I TA'd international uh, <laughs> economics because everything in international economics is upside down, right? You know the way you think about the world, you just have to turn your head upside down. So trade deficits is a great example of that, right? So um, trade deficit sounds bad because you are importing more than you're exporting. You know that's what it means. But in fact, most of us think that it's a sign of strength. You know, why is it a sign of strength? Well, for several reasons. The first, most obvious one is. Well, when you're buying more from the rest of the world, that's probably because the domestic economy is doing well. Consumers are strong. Mm -hmm. So we should understand that as a source of strength. But more importantly, and this is the part where you have to turn your head upside down, is to understand that the way we trade with the world in goods and services is a reflection and has to be reflected by how we import and export capital. So one way to think about it is how do we actually – what enables us to buy all these goods from everywhere else? Yeah. And the answer is the flow of capital to us oh. from the rest of the world. Okay. That's actually – otherwise, how else would we be able to buy more than we, you know, than we sell? Okay. And it is because the rest of the world is confident enough in us and is lending us and investing in us. Yeah. And that's the capital account and the current account. So that's an even more pronounced sense in which a trade deficit is a reflection of strength because it means that we are a great place to invest. There's one final piece, which is a little more complicated, which is specific to the U.S.
2: Which what is, do you mean, more complicated?
1: <laughs> you know, which is we've been doing this for a long time. Uh, so normally you think about this as something that is temporary, even if it's over 10 years or 20 years. But it's been going on for now 40 years. We've been running trade deficits. So that means something slightly different. <laughs> you know, it means one of two things. First, over the really long run, we've got to pay people back. And so you got to – it's got to flip at some that's point. Right. Yep. And so that's a little worrying. Um, the one intriguing possibility is that for the United States, it may never have to flip back. And that's because of something in economics literature that's known as – it's a great term. It's called exorbitant privilege, which is we're just so <laughs> special because we're the U.S. and we're the reserve currency that people are willing to invest in us, earn low returns, and just keep doing it. So that's the final thing that's a little unclear, which is – so you know I think the way to think about it this is – In the short run, it's a sign of strength because our consumers are buying more. In the medium run, it's a sign of strength because people want to invest in us and that's what this reflects. Over the long run, it's more complicated because we are going to have to pay it back at some point unless we're super special. And we are, right? Right and i think we are or we have been and the question is whether we continue to continue will to be the dollar ever
2: get replaced get replaced by some other currency that is right. the reserve currency which uh,
1: i don't think that will happen yeah. in my yeah. lifetime so that's the sense in which all this stuff which is something that feels terrible a trade deficit yeah. can just yeah. as easily be seen as an incredible source of strength
2: so so when we step back a little bit there's there's all these concerns i think that that are really easy to exploit in politics right you can make people scared about the future that's really easy you can make make people scared about trading with with foreign nations uh you can all these all these things that are so intuitive and so obvious to people who study international trade and economics like oh the point of trade is cheap imports as opposed to job generation for the local economy Uh, but somehow, we're not getting through. We're not having much success. Like the kinds of things that the three of us would think, yes, of course, you know, we're in a fabulous position. There's nothing to be concerned about. Don't be worried. And yet, we're not getting through.
3: It's funny because when I was listening to you, Mahir, talk about why trade deficits are not necessarily a bad thing. I was thinking to myself, it must make you crazy to read the newspaper. <laughs> it must make you crazy to see the way we're talking about this as a country because it's so disconnected from what we know, right? And I think one of the things that Trump has done is he has moved the conversation from one about free trade to one what he calls fair trade. And it's it's like a verbal sleight of hand. It's yeah. like a mm-hmm. it's just like a sideways step rhetorically, but it's incredibly powerful thing to do, because once you start talking about fairness, people's minds immediately go to reciprocity, an assumption that things have to be mm-hmm. equivalent on both sides yeah. yep. on a bilateral basis. Right. There's a winner. And there's a loser, and if the accounting doesn't add up to being fifty fifty, someone must be winning and someone yeah. must be losing. Yeah, yeah. So this whole notion of fairness, just even using that framing, yeah. slides things over to to a point where we're thinking about things, in compl- I would argue, in completely the wrong way.
2: Mm-hmm. It's a it's a great example, in the sense that so much of what he's talking about is always in terms of negotiations. Yeah, and this is like just another thing that is driving me mildly crazy. Like in his world, all negotiations are zero-sum. That's right. In every one of our negotiations classes, you (laughs) do everything to make a negotiation not zero-sum. That's what successful negotiators do. And so it's these, these small differences, this sleight of hand exactly that you talk right. about, that then completely change the conversation. Yeah. The
3: truth of the matter is when it comes to trade, what you described, here early on, is actually not that easy for people to understand. Imagine if you had to evaluate how financially healthy your household was. What you would never do is look at every single financial relationship you have and see if there was a 50-50 trade, because you're always running a deficit with the grocery store. Right. You're always running a deficit with the dry cleaner, and then you have this huge surplus coming from your employer, right? You know, you have to think about kind of the overall health of your household. Does it all kind yeah. of add up? That's that's a very difficult thing, I think, for people well, to get their heads around. This notion that it's more important that the the overall ecosystem be healthy, right? And that the rules of engagement work for, for all parties.
1: And it's even harder because it's not just kind of party by party, which is kind of country by country in this trade analogy, but it's also over time. It's like exactly. an intertemporal thing, right? You have to understand that there's a time for you to pay back and there's a time when you can borrow. And that piece is also really hard.
3: But here's what's really depressing. Remember, there used to be a time where f- this was one of those issues where it was pretty bipartisan, like the consensus that That's free right. trade was yeah. a good thing. Yeah. There was, you know, there was bipartisan agreement, and today you can see this bipartisan pullback yep. from a consensus around free trade. Bernie Sanders was completely against free trade. <laughs> he was against NAFTA. He was against TPP. You even had a moderate like Hillary withdrawing support from TPP after she initially mm-hmm. supported <laughs> yeah. it. And and what I find depressing is that we seem to have lost the capacity as a country to engage in any discourse. Yeah.
1: One part I think that we I think should take responsibility for though is we always said free trade is good there's comparative advantage both parties win and the answer is um, yes but um, sectors within the economies lose yeah. and you have to redistribute the gains from trade yeah. to parties yeah. to ensure that everybody wins and that last part yeah, kind of we- got left out yeah. and it's not clear we've done enough of that redistribution um, to towards the people who would lose and you know Trump's genius, if you want to call it that, is he figured that out. Yeah. There are people who are losing <laughs> and mm-hmm. they are angry. Yeah. And, you know, we kept saying, us globalists kept saying, it's good, it's good, it's good. And they were facing a reality that was different. And we never did the talk about the redistribution and we never did the actual, probably the redistribution required mm-hmm. uh, to make that true for everybody. So I think we're partly to blame in that sense.
2: But the, but these two, my sense is these two things are, are Different conversations. So one conversation is about how desirable is trade and how much social support do you need in a country that is very open to the rest of to the rest mm-hmm. of the world. Because we know the moment China joined the WTO, there was a big hit on US manufacturing. Yeah. And if you're in one of these industries, that's you know, we are responsible for not only capturing the gains from trade, but also making sure that people that people are left whole. But that to me is a different conversation from this semi-idiotic conversation <laughs> that we now have yeah. around trade deficits. That's <laughs> like, yeah. I was like if, if he had come out and if, 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 the, if the next president of the United States says, look, trade has really different impacts. Like some people are helped, lots of people are helped a little bit and some people are really hurt. That I think it's a I, I think yeah. this is a way to go back to consensus. yes, yeah. we need to do a better job helping the people who uh, are law lo- have lost out as a result of trade, yeah. but this is very different. so I give you one this is you know being being at HBS we're an export industry, okay The current administration makes it more difficult oh, yeah. for foreign students to join yeah. educational institutions in the United States. If you believe the trade deficit conversation for a minute, you should do everything to attract foreign students. Because that
3: counts as an export. That counts as an yeah. export. That counts as an export.
1: Yeah. Is well, not what we're doing. But this is the other piece of it which I think is important, which is we fetishize goods and we don't think about services. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's, yes. if, it ain't, yeah. if it ain't metal and coal, we don't <laughs> care. But the reality is services are – and we're obviously in the services business. Um, nobody seems to care about those. Everyone, it's all about the goods. Yeah. You know? And then we know that the economy is ninety percent services. Well, it's a lot, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, exactly.
3: There are two things I want to go back to though. When you were talking about how there are some sectors that lose, because that's that's absolutely what's happened, right? And the first thing I would say is, you know, unf- unfortunately, those jobs aren't coming back. You could slap as many tariffs as you want. We are a service economy now. Our days of being an industrial economy are are simply not coming back. But the second thing is is it's easy to forget that we are a nation of producers and consumers simultaneously, yeah. right? So when you see a trade deficit, it's the sum total of a whole bunch of individual decisions that we're making as consumers when we go and buy stuff. Every time you walk into a Walmart, you're buying cheap goods, and you're benefiting as a consumer. So even in the sectors that have lost— They've won as well on a a different kind of dimension. So we're not telling that full story. I mean, one of the ironies in in all of this for me is this notion that if we were to slap a whole bunch of tariffs on Chinese goods coming into the country, what would suffer? Well, parts of the service industry would suffer, in particular retail, which means that all those folks who move from manufacturing jobs to retail jobs – they would end up suffering again. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They would get hit again yeah. as a result of these tariffs.
1: Yeah. No, this is what, one of the parts of trade which is you you try to help somebody. You think you're doing something to help somebody and you're precisely hurting them. This is yeah. the sense in which yes. the world is always a little bit upside down in trade.
3: How much should it matter that China is playing this game differently than than the US plays the game? So how much does it matter that, you know, China made a bunch of promises when it joined the WTO and it hasn't kept them all? How much does it matter that China suppresses the value of its currency to give its exports an advantage? How much does it matter that China makes it difficult for non-Chinese companies to compete in China? How much does that matter?
1: You want to address those things individually. And I think, you know, the IP stuff, I think, is real. Yeah. And the competition um, here is real. Meaning, so, U.S. firms competing in China, yeah. I think, is real. Um, but just to be clear, you know, we've done things to make it hard for some Chinese companies. Yeah. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I agree, but it th- they may not be playing by the rules, but let's deal with that in separate and individualized way as opposed to kind of the, the really harsh instrument of trying to cut them in, in trade. And
2: I think the, maybe
1: what I would add is
2: you're in charge of a really poor country. You're trying to get – Many more people to the middle class. How would you do that? Like right. Classically, you would do that by moving lots of labor into places where their productivity is much higher. In the context of China, it's like they're moving hundreds of millions of people from, from agriculture to the cities. Uh, how can you accelerate that migration? Oh, you subsidize industry. The moment you're a member of the World Trade Organization, that's no longer allowed. Mm-hmm. The only instrument that is left is your currency. So what do they do? I think it's the RMB is probably no longer undervalued right now. But at the time when U.S. manufacturing gets really hit, I think there's pretty good evidence that the RMB was undervalued. But that's the only policy that we left for a poor country mm-hmm. to do something for their people to accelerate growth. And 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 so I, to your question, I think I would think about. Yes, so we need to insist on people playing by the rules and we do this one by one if you violate the rules. And by the way, we have a pretty sophisticated system that does exactly that, which now we're undermining by not using (laughs) it.
1: Okay, so I think uh, the reason I wanted to talk about Tesla is not just because they're an iconic company and really interesting, but this last week has gotten particularly interesting. So they're in the headlines a lot, but what's happened most recently is they've hit a number of roadblocks, and those roadblocks are production problems that are not being, cars are not being delivered, specifically the Model 3 is not being delivered at the rate he had promised. That actually had historically been true. He's been overpromising production for a long time. Um, There are issues with the tariffs. Actually, they're going to get hit with the tariffs. There's issues with um, autonomous vehicles. They've had some problems with that. But the really interesting part that is happening now is the financial model is getting compromised too. And um, they have borrowed a lot of money. And credit spreads on their debt blew out, which is just a way of saying the amount their bonds are yielding is way higher than it was before, which means that people are now factoring in the possibility of bankruptcy, mm-hmm. 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 which now makes that whole story, I think, even more interesting than it was before. <laughs> no. And yeah, then yeah. finally, he responds on April 1st. Yeah, that was by, awesome. That by, was, mocking, <laughs> yeah. by mocking the concern. Yeah. yeah. And so he is playing a very –
3: On Twitter, right? On Twitter, yeah.
1: right? And he says that he's broke. Um, and so he is playing a very high-stakes game you know with the capital markets. Yeah. And so and with the markets I think in general. So I'm I'm just curious to get your thoughts on first Tesla as a phenomenon.
3: But wait, Mahir. so are you bearish on Tesla? Because you, you were very careful not to reveal you know, your hand. You know <laughs>
1: You know it's funny because um it, it, you know Tesla shorts um have been the ones where you have just gotten your face torn off. Yeah. which is, um, you know, finance talk for the most painful thing in the world. Uh, because at four years ago, it was at 20, and now it's at 300. You can lose 50 next, and it's just incredible. I am getting interested in being short. And I think this is what I really wanted to say, which is I think the outcome is becoming binary. Either they really become the greatest automotive company in the world, or maybe they go away. And that, to me, is what's intriguing now, because they've borrowed around $9 billion dollars, and they're burning cash like there's no tomorrow. So there's a real nice thing happening now, which is there's a real possibility—not just oh the products won't sell, yeah. Oh, you know, production will be problematic. No, no, no. Now, now we're talking about serious stuff. Now we're talking about bankruptcy. So I'm curious about a) how you think about their ascent, where you think they're going to go, and of course, um, since we have a customer, and I've driven, <laughs> I've driven, but I have not owned a Tesla. But people who own them love them. I love. I've loved driving Teslas, I'll, just to be, put my cards on the table. I think it's incredible. But
3: you know more. So here are a couple things about Tesla that I find really interesting. In my mind, I feel like Tesla has nailed two of the hardest things. Number one, they have nailed the technology. It is an unbelievable machine that they have developed. The second thing they've done is they've nailed the commercial appeal. So you've got 400,000 people who have put deposits down for this car. Those are two really hard things to nail. Now, they can't seem to figure out how to run an auto production line to save (laughs) their lives. Well, it's hard to do that. Yeah, Yeah. it is hard. hard. I think that's hard. But if you had asked me what's the hardest thing, I would not have named that as being the hardest. That seems like a solvable problem to me. In fact, it's almost bewildering. You know, if they were producing 300,000 cars a year – we would not be having this conversation. They would be in a completely, completely different scenario. The second thing I'll say is that when I look at the precarious financial high wire act that they are currently entertaining us with, there's a part of me that thinks that this is exactly what investors should be financing. Uh In other words, the last thing we need is another dating app or another fashion brand. If you're going to invest in anything... You want investors to be able to finance the real moonshots. This is a guy that's trying to get us to reduce our dependence on fossil fuel and all adopt a more environmentally friendly technology. Sure. Like this is really hard stuff. And in some ways, it's a really compelling counterargument to the, to the complaint that our financial markets are always too short-term minded. Mm-hmm. Because the people who are long on Tesla are long on Tesla. Yeah. The final thing I will say, just to seed our conversation, is that this Highwire Act is not unprecedented. So if you look today at the three most valuable companies in the world, two of them, Apple and Amazon, there have been moments when they were on the brink of bankruptcy. And mm-hmm. today, they're two of the most valuable companies. So these, these are moonshot companies, and I think that's what we're seeing in, in yeah. this case.
2: There's two things that they did just exceedingly well the first was and and I don't know if you people even remember now the idea of a high-end electric vehicle was deeply yes. absurd yeah like who wants to drive one of these things yeah. I mean you look at anything that even approach being an electric vehicle and it's like the uh, the the ugliest be, collection right. of cars that you can possibly that you can possibly imagine right. and so i think that's that's really fabulous and then what i love about the business model is one of the one of the really difficult things about for, for traditional car companies to move into this space is that they have these dealer relationships. And the dealers make yeah. a lot of money off yeah, of parts. Right. Right. And so the entire economics of your dealer relationship and, – and then you have this issue. If you could jump into an all-electric future, you'd be fine. You'd be like Tesla, but you cannot because for a very long time, the economy is going to be mixed. Some people will. And so I think – utilizing this asset not trying to build or go or make use of the traditional dealerships yeah. and this idea of a beautifully engineered car can actually be electric and can be can provide you exactly that experience that you that you described i think that's what that's what put them on the map how hard is that to replicate not that hard yeah so i would actually think there is no scenario to to your earlier point me here no scenario in the world where they become a dominant car company. I think the electric vehicle space is going to be super, super competitive
3: because it's much easier to produce an electric vehicle. I'm not making the argument that they're going to be the dominant car maker, because I agree, there are going to be many, many players in the market. But having said that, Felix, listen to your description of what it takes to compete in this market. And when you listen to that description, what you realize is that if this is going to become a branded market where brands matter, you're saying lots of folks are going to be able to produce these vehicles, just like lots of folks can build internal combustion engines right now. And so then it becomes a branded market. So then the question is, what's our player going to be? And by our, I mean, what's the American brand? That's going to be one of the global players. Mm -hmm. You can easily imagine China occupying a very particular Mm -hmm. place in this landscape, probably at the lower end. You can imagine Germany with Mercedes and BMW. Who's going to be our horse in Mm -hmm. the game, right? Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Ford, really? We're all going to want to drive (laughs) Ford electric vehicles? Sure. Maybe some (laughs) folks will, but you're telling me that Ford is going to take us into this future. I'm sorry. I think there's a place for an American car maker and I think branding really matters. I also think there's a unique halo effect that he gets by virtue of the fact that he's doing things like launching satellites into space on with reusable <laughs> rockets and things like that. I mean, all of that stuff matters in a branded landscape. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So again, I'm not making the argument that there's going to be one winner but I'm making the argument that it's conceivable that Tesla becomes a real player.
2: Can I agree with your story and remain pessimistic? <laughs> <laughs> want at the same time. So the way, and actually, it's, 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 it's very interesting to me. Uh, right now, you know, when you think about, it, like, what are your cars doing now? They do nothing, right? Like most of the time, they just sit in the parking lot and they're unused. So in the U.S., car utilization rates are... Roughly two percent or so. If we go from two to five percent, we kill all growth. So the number of cars like right now, compound growth in the hmm. last couple of years was roughly 10-12%. So we're not gonna need more cars. If we manage to get to ten or twenty percent, the number of cars on the road are going to be drastically reduced. Yeah. All of this is just a peak load problem. As long as we insist everybody is at work by nine. You know, everybody needs a car at that point in time. We need many cars. But if we, if we come to more flexible ways of working, the number of cars is going to downshift. I think in that scenario, almost all the value that gets created gets created around mobility services. The one hope that I would have for Tesla is just like they figured out how to practically repair your car <laughs> while you're driving it, they have a very different relationship with data and they have a very different relationship with the services around the automobile. So if I think there's anything in that company that sets them up for future success, they're they're much better equipped than say a Volvo or a Geely or mm-hmm. or a be like some of the other Chinese car companies. uh to, to really capture the value around services because it's going to be a service play. And can yeah. I
3: add one thing on top of that? They are uniquely positioned to gradually move us into autonomous driving, putting the accident aside, okay? Yeah. Because the Teslas on the road today, they have autopilot, but they operate along this continuum. And it is really amazing to me the number of Tesla drivers who thought they would never, ever use an autonomous car. You find yourself as you get more and more comfortable in your car just you, moving gradually, gradually. So I started out with the feature where you can be in your house and you can have the car pull out of the garage by itself and just be waiting for you. So I started with that, which the first time you do it is the coolest thing you've yeah. ever seen in your <laughs> life. so then you get to the point where it's like okay I'm going to let this thing parallel park for you and then you get to the point where you're you're on the freeway and you, instead of using cruise control you start to use a more intelligent form of cruise control and you, it starts to just move you along this path where you just become huh, more interesting and more comfortable
1: yep. a couple of quick things I want to make sure and say which is one I think actually you're I had not really thought of your argument about an American car maker that we're going to need one and there's going to be a demand for that. I think that's actually quite interesting. Um, the second thing is in your fully autonomous future, why do we care about design and engineering and why are people willing to pay that much in a fully autonomous future?
3: This Be- coming from a guy who cares deeply about every single piece of technology that you surround yourself with. I mean, here no. I have not met a single human <laughs> being that cares more about the aesthetic profile of the you things.
1: You do. You care even more. <laughs>
3: okay, but, but you, you care so much about well. things that are well-crafted well, and but, well-made. But by example,
1: I don't, I don't own a car. And I'm, I want to go to a future where I don't own a car. I want to yeah. go to 4% or 5% yeah. utilization. Yeah. And I, I, I want to be there. And then I'm thinking, well, who's paying? Here's my problem, which is if they don't become the dominant car company, I think their leverage is going to kill them. I think um, they need to succeed massively in order to survive. That's what I mean. I think it's a literally a binary outcome now. Anyway, so I just want to – let's make sure we put our uh, trades on the table. In 10 years, where is Tesla. It's gone. It's. It will be swallowed.
2: Pieces of technology will wow. be swallowed by someone. I think the idea that they had was a really fabulous idea, and the idea will live on. I don't think the company will live
3: on. So, Felix, you're no longer getting a ride home from me. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: and I was so hoping. <laughs> Where are you going to go on this, Yumi?
3: I don't quite buy the notion that they have to be the dominant player in order to survive but of course they're going to be around.
1: I think it's going to be very painful. I think they're around I think they're painful Um, I think they're small. They're more niche than you think and uh, it'll be painful 10 years and I don't think this guy has the resilience of jobs I think this guy's different. I think he's got a different kind of DNA. So I don't know we'll find out. We'll meet again in 10 years
3: So did you guys bring in picks tonight? Absolutely. You did? You did. Okay. Yeah. All right. Who wants to go first? Should I go first? I'll go yeah, first. Yeah, you, I'm yeah, going yeah, to go first, go first yeah. actually. Okay. The book that I want to recommend came to mind after I was talking to you, Felix, and you were talking about how much you love Game of Thrones. And he was going on. So he's a huge fan of Game <laughs> of Thrones, <laughs> like, like in a, to an embarrassing degree, honestly. Pretty embarrassing. Yes, exactly. Although I, I love the show as well. <laughs> but I actually read the book several years ago, and it's by David Benioff. And if you recognize the name, he's the showrunner for Game of Thrones. Uh And before Game of Thrones, he was a novelist. And one of the novels he wrote is a book called City of Thieves. And it is a spectacular, spectacular book. It takes place during the Nazi siege of Leningrad. It's a book about the friendship between these two guys it's funny, it's moving, it's poignant, it's fantastic. But mostly, I think you should read it because I think you will just get such a window into the talents of this guy. Yeah. His ability to create these set pieces where you get so in touch with the human condition. I mean, he does this on Game of Thrones all the time. Even though the scenario might be completely disconnected from your own reality, you're just there. You're so completely there. So I think, I think you'll love this book. It's City of Thieves by David Benioff. Wow.
2: Sounds fabulous. Go for it, Felix. I'll uh, I'll talk about it's an app, it's a website uh, called Artsy and it's to me it's completely changed how I travel and visit cities that I'm not so familiar with. Uh, one of the things that I love doing when I, when I visit the city, I love to figure out where's the gallery district, yep. and then, you know, I go from gallery to gallery, and because I don't really know the galleries, it's really hit and miss. Like, sometimes I'm, like, super, super lucky, and sometimes I see, like, oh, my God, what is wrong with art today? Like, a pretty, a pretty depressing experience. And so what Artsy allows you to do is it allows you to see city by city the current shows Uh, what you will see in the different galleries. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's like the best thing ever. It's one of these apps where I can almost, uh, oh my God, like I actually know nothing about the company and I fear every time I use the product that they might just go away (laughs) because I don't see a business model. I have no idea how they're making (laughs) money. So it's like, please don't go out of business. So if you listen, artsy... (laughs) Don't go out of business.
1: Call Felix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll think love, about a business model. Yeah. I love when you love a product enough <laughs> that you worry about the economics. Yes, to I the, know. To the per- so um, I have something relatively lowbrow, which is uh, I married uh, an Anglophile and I've become a lover of many things British oh. now. Mm. And um, the most <laughs> embarrassing one, of which I'll share now, which is University Challenge is the greatest game show ever. It is a quiz show (laughs) featuring colleges in the UK who compete. The show's been going on for 40, 50 years, I think. And there are four kids from uh, Merton College, Oxford or whatever it is. It's
3: like a trivia thing? It's
1: a trivia thing. But it is, A, so hard. It is, like, impossible. These kids are, like, (laughs) unbelievable. And so the questions, I mean, you know, the subjects are like, you know, they go from fossils to, like, Battles in poetry that are being mentioned to like Pascal triangles, and you're just in <laughs> awe. You're like, you're lucky if you get like one writing show. You know, the second thing is it's incredibly British, so it's so British. Like these kids are like, you know, they're, they're they just look so uh, they just look so British and they're like dressed in like this. You know, it's just a spectacular. And then Jeremy Paxman is the host, and instead of reading the rules at the beginning of the show, he says, "Let's just get on with it." So the quarterfinals are are about to end and we're going into the semifinals. You watch it on YouTube. Um, I watch it on YouTube at least. I'm sure there's a more legitimate way to download the content. Um, (laughs) But I have to say if you have any interest in the UK and you love British things or if you love trivia or if you just want to feel like you know nothing – (laughs) Watch the show. It's just fantastic. University Challenge. Uh,
3: Yet another context in which I have to feel like I know nothing. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This is HBS After Hours.